Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from AS220 in Providence, Rhode Island. This week, we're recording in front of a big audience. My guest today wasn't surprised by Trump or Brexit or the crises spreading across the European continent. In fact, he predicted them all. The neoliberal economic and political order, obsessively dedicated to eliminating inflation and maximizing profits, is in crisis, and so is the political establishment that built, maintained, and defended it. Mark Blythe, a native of Dundee, Scotland, grew up, as he put it, in relative poverty, in a very real sense, a welfare kid. Today, he's a professor of political economy at Brown. Probabilistically speaking, he writes, I am as an extreme example of intergenerational social mobility as you can find anywhere. Blythe is the author of Great Transformations, Economic Ideas and Institutional Change in the 20th Century, and Austerity, The History of a Dangerous Idea. Mark, welcome to the day. Thank you. Um, so you saw Trump coming. Uh, unlike the pundits who were reading political tea leaves, you were looking at the political economic reality and at history. What did you see? So can I start with when I went shopping today? Sure. Right. <laughs> so uh, I have my friend Cornell in from out of town. Some of you know Cornell Van. He's, he's here. And uh, we were out and about, and I thought, oh, I need to get bread. I need to get salad leaves. So bread and salad leaves are probably the two things where you will not be monetarily murdered if you go into Whole Foods. So we broke habits and, and went into Whole Foods. And when I was just getting out of the car, my wife Jewel said to me, um, hey, can you get me some makeup pads? Trust me, this makes sense. Um, can you give me some makeup? I was like, all right, fine. So, you know, I went in salad leaves and all that. And I went into those, you know, those three aisles in Whole Foods, which is filled with sort of like magical astrological bullshit medicine. <laughs> <laughs> those ones, right? But I just, I'm like, okay, so let me get this straight. I can't really buy sort of, you know, let's say Wheaties here, but I can get magnesium. You know, that makes sense, right? Um, so I'm wandering and I'm looking for makeup pads, and eventually I find sort of the, you know, the, the, the bourgeois person who works here because that's, that's where they keep them. And uh, I ran and said to her and said, um, have you got any makeup pads? And she went, what? Makeup pads, you know, little round things, they come in a tube. Thing. Oh, no, we don't have anything like that. <laughs> and I went, really? And she said, no, no, really. And I'm like, well, you have all this crap and you don't actually have that. And I just looked at me and I went, this is a... This is just an absurd store. I said, what, what do you mean it's an absurd store? And I, was like, it's like, and I didn't want to get into it. I just went, you know, this kind of explains why Trump won. <laughs> and walked off. Now, implicitly, you all know what I'm getting at, right? At which point was it that, you know, it used to be the case you had the other side of the tracks, right? And then we had good neighborhoods, bad neighborhoods, and we had people who went to expensive schools and other things, right? And then we started to have completely separate lifestyles. Even within a city the size of Providence, we would consume different foods, right? We, we would value different sort of like ways of relating to the, the very products that we consume. We live these micro worlds, which are incredibly income skewed. And I've been here for 26 years, and I've seen the steady evolution of this. And being basically a professor at Brown and a great example of intergenerational social mobility, guess what? I'm able to shop at Whole Foods and not care about it, right? But then, I, you know, there's part of me that goes, I'm not paying that, I'm Scottish. Ah. <laughs> and I go to other supermarkets, and I, I go to the one literally on the other side of the tracks, literally the train tracks, right, the big stopping shop. And I get there, and it was a bargain, by the way, it's way cheaper, right? 
But it's totally different. And it's totally different people living in the same city. Now, how does this relate to sort of Trump politics, the whole thing? So there's a kind of political class, and this is where I'm actually very sympathetic to what the people who put Trump in power say, because they're right about this. There's a political and economic elite that only talks to each other. They live in certain neighborhoods, they travel to certain cities, they talk about certain things, they consume certain goods. One of the most interesting things that happened on the email hacks of the Democratic Party was when they got Podesta's email and somebody, I can't remember who it was, it might have been Tom Frank, did a search by place name. You know what the most common place name was? Martha, for Martha's Vineyard. Followed by the Hamptons, followed by New York, followed by San Francisco. You'll be waiting a long time until you get to Cleveland or Baltimore. So this is this very, very enclosed self-referential group of people who somehow think they're representing both the politics of the left and the people who's, who would benefit from those politics. And then we get to the absurdity of the election, where you've got the main candidate for our side coming out and saying, everything's fine, we've got full employment. Somewhat brushing over the fact that 94% of the jobs created since 2008 have been agency, contract, part-time, and usually without benefits. They celebrate the fact that like, wages are growing again. You've had two quarters. For 60% of the population, they've been stagnant for 25 years. I mean, take your head out of your arse and look around. Or in other words, get out of Whole Foods. Go to another supermarket. And you'll find that your claims that everything's fine rings hollow. Now go to the Republican side on this one. Yes, they're the grave diggers. They're the ones who have been doing all the bad stuff, really. Who modernized derivatives? Who deregulated finance? Who signed NAFTA? Who made promises to the unions in this country and then completely broke them and never attempted to do anything to repair the damage? That would be our side. I expect the Republicans to be Republicans. I do not expect our side to be aiders and abettors. Guess what happened? Everybody in those five states, the blue wall, who were so safe we didn't even need to go visit them or even talk to them or listen to their concerns, finally found a champion, a tribune, someone who basically at least said the words that they said to themselves that we were unable to say. That's why it happened. Now, Think about it. It's pretty obvious. Brexit's exactly the same thing. You're in London, the London chattering classes sitting around saying everything's fine and everything is not fine. And the people in Sunderland, who have the largest car factory in Europe, all of which got the largest exporter to Europe from the United Kingdom, Nissan factory, all of that trade goes to Europe. They would never vote against the EU. That would be insane. 61% of Sunderland said, we want out. Because you're just giving people, as they did in Italy and as you're about to do in France, a chance to say something that they never get to do. To break through that bubble and tell their elites, take that. That's what's promoting this. Now here's the dangerous side of that. On the other side of that thing, there are a bunch of opportunists with an extremely dangerous, nasty agenda, which we've just begun to see what it's beginning to look like. So it's predictable. It's tragic. We need to stop it. That's the conversation we need to have. What is the political and economic project that people like the Clintons and the Democratic establishment in the US and in the UK, the Labour Party, leftist center parties all over the world, 
what what was the neo what was or is the neoliberal project, and why did it become so attractive to left of, left of center party elites? So, think about it. Any, has anybody here ever smoked? This mic stand's a nightmare, by the way. Has anybody ever smoked? I mean, you're allowed to say that. You can't. Young people don't count because you know you'll recover if you stop now. It's fine. <laughs> is, is anybody here sort of like you know anybody who's like done it way longer than you should, right? Because um, yay, there you go, one guy. Excellent, well done, right? Um, <laughs> The good news is you'll consume very little health care at the end of life in comparison to baby boomers who don't smoke, but you know, what you know. Um, anyway, where, 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 where was I going with that one? Um, the, thing about, the, thing, no, the thing about smokers is, uh, is that you know, every day is the next day you're going to quit. So you've got these very short-term time horizons, and the closest thing to, to smokers are politicians. Um, so the idea that basically, you know, they were sitting there going, yes, and, and now we're going to deregulate this, and we'll do this, and we'll do that. Most of these things are done kind of on the spur. And I've spoken to a lot of the people who have really been, are very high up, and, and they respond, as we all do, to sort of what's happening next week and what's happening next month. I mean, very few of them have grand designs. Bannon does, that's an entirely different thing, right? <laughs> but very few of them have grand designs. And what happens is this kind of salami process of different slices, right? So here's the sort of the macro story that, that, that I think makes sense. So back in the 1940s through the 1970s, the so-called golden age, right? And why was it the golden age? Because growth was 3%, top end of the income distribution came down, bottom end went up, and everybody moved up together. National income here doubled, in France it tripled, in Italy it tripled. It was the growth of the middle classes. It was the growth of the parents who got everything for free, who are now voting for right-wing nasties so they can get tax cuts. I hate boomers, I really do. It's, it's, it's an issue with me now, right? But we'll put that to one side just now. Um, so in this process, you have a bit of an economic problem, which is once you've decided that the one project you need to continue is full employment, because if you don't, you go back to the 1930s and fascism, etc. When you basically overcook labour markets, you don't just move up the median wage, you drag up basically the, res the reservation wage at the bottom. And the only way businesses can keep up with this is constantly push up prices. So guess what? By the time you got to the 1970s, as a guy called Mikhail Kolecki had predicted in 1943, wages go up, prices go up, wages go up, prices go up. Now the thing about inflation is it's a tax on profits. So if your expected rate of return on an investment is 5%, suddenly inflation is 7%, you might as well burn your house. It's gone. On the other hand, if you're a debtor, right? Boomers again, folks, right? Um, if you had a big-ass mortgage in the 1970s and you took it out in a 30-year fix and it was 5 or 6% and inflation went to 12%, brilliant. You were just basically laughing all the way to the bank because the, cost, the debt was being eaten, right? So it was a debtor's paradise. It was labor's paradise in the sense that wages were always increasing. Business had to do the adjustment. Inequality was low very low, corporate profits were low, wages had never been higher in real terms. Parliaments were the thing that really mattered. Central banks, nobody knew who the hell ran the central bank in 1972. It was Arthur Burns, but no, <laughs> nobody knows who that was, right? And uh, basically this was the world. Now, basically capital, this is the neoliberal term. Capital says, this is bullshit, because we cannot, the right to manage has collapsed, number one. Uh, property rights are meaningless in this environment. Returns to assets are completely variable on inflation, which is basically caused by governments constantly accommodating to wage demands. So what we need to do is bust this. So they did. So you start the Reagan and Thatcher revolutions, you take square aim at labour, you want to destroy labour's possibility of resistance. Now why? Because in the golden age, 
when you have to deal with labor because you've got limits on what capital can do, it can't run around the world doing whatever it wants, you kind of have to bargain with the people who are making the stuff. And the only way then you can increase your profitability, even without inflation, is by constantly being more productive. So you have high investment rates. So you have high taxes, high investment. Most of the taxes are paid by the people in the middle, given the income distribution, and that's recirculated in high consumption, and it keeps the whole model going. It was a lovely model, but it blew up because of inflation. So what do the powers that be do? They decide that basically price stability is the thing. Without price stability, there's nothing. Inflation is the worst of all possible things. And people voted for this, despite the fact that half the mortgage had just been eaten away by inflation, which obviously was a boon. And then you have the Reagan and Thatcher revolution. Now, you run this out for 30 years, you have independent central banks, the WTO, you break labor's ability to resist. Because productivity continues to do this, but wages do this, basically for all of, all, everybody except the top 20%. This is what happened. That's the share of capital, and that's what's going back to capital, and this continues for 30 years. So you end up with this complete reversal as to the 1970s. We've dumped 13 trillion euros, dollars, pounds, and yen into the global money supply. There's no inflation anywhere, right? This is the interest rates are going to go up. Bullshit! No, they're not. They can't, because the Fed can do what it wants in what's called the short end of the curve. It can do money market operations to basically influence credit over short term. But in the long term, it's influenced by basically the demand and supply for credit globally. And what do we have? We have a world where everyone's gotten old. What do old people do? They consume less and they save more. And if they've been part of that neoliberal revolution and they've been saying, well, I don't agree with Reagan, but I love my tax cut. Where's my 401k? Jesus, what is the level of the stock market? They're oversaving. And so is Asia. And so are the Germans. So you have too many savings and too few investment opportunities. So the real rate of interest, what they call in central bank speak, R star, has collapsed. So you have no inflation, you've got interest rates on the floor. This is why this becomes a huge pain. How many of you are in debt? How many of you are in way more debt than you'd like to be? Right, and you're the intelligentsia, forgive me, who are here tonight. Now think about everybody in the supermarkets that I go to that aren't Whole Foods. The ones whose wages are getting constantly squeezed, whose hours are becoming zero-hour contracts. The ones who are really living on the edge. And think about the fact that if they take on one credit card worth of debt or if they have one medical bill, it can send them completely over the edge. You have no way of raising your wages. And if your wages don't rise and your debts are there, and your debts, particularly the student debts, are guaranteed by God himself that you can never default on them, you're a debt peon. So we have a world in which rather than a creditor's paradise, a debtor's paradise we had in the 70s, we have a creditor's paradise now. Now let's think about populism. What is populism? Populism is when people wake up in that environment one day and say, I'm working harder. I'm getting squeezed more. I'm constantly being told we need to be more flexible. My parents went to university for 50 bucks at Berkeley and got the greatest minds in the world coming from World War II refugees. And then they got 1968, they got to take a year off, check themselves out, do S courses and generally be idiots. They now own 75% of all the financial assets in the world. And we've got nothing. What the hell just happened? And why do I need to pay for everything from ever-diminishing wages? Now, if your political classes in the mainstream can't actually even articulate that that's a problem, that that's something that you need to acknowledge to people, to actually say, yeah, I kind of know that your life sucks, 
Because all you do is live in this bubble, this reified bubble of people who go to Whole Foods and talk to each other about whether something's inorganic or not. Then you're not going to get it, are you? You're not going to see it. You're not going to go even to go to North Providence, right? Get out of the east side. Go and look at places that have like mobile signs that your network would never carry. Places where you go and see people actually going to pawn shops every week and cashing in what little valuables they have to make ends meet. Where you're paying 10% on check cashing agencies and you're going to pay the lenders. The majority of Americans earn less than $22 an hour. And that's the average. Now think about the skew at the top because you've got people that earn thousands of dollars an hour. So that means that average is actually being dragged up. There are people, most people, are actually worse off than you can imagine. Now if your mainstream political parties cannot talk about that, can't acknowledge it and come out and say, it's great, we have full employment, it's fabulous, we're defending Obama's legacy. And you wonder why people who aren't shopping at Whole Foods are like, what in legacy? That's why the populace are there. Here, Britain, France, everywhere. Well, I thought that America was already great, but um, apparently not. <laughs> what, why do uh, political elites um, persevere in pursuing neoliberal policies like austerity um, in the face of so much adverse empirical evidence? Is it, is it ideological blindness? Is it a class project to transfer wealth? Are, is it both, and are the two one and the same? So th th this is sort of the moment where I go, this is why I'm not a Marxist. Um, and it's because m Marxists tend to love these types of frames where they go, well, here's this incredibly complex social reality that's evolved over 30 years. Is it A or is it B? <laughs> or C. Right? Or C no, I mean, no, again, go back to the smoker's point, right? People stumble into this. So, you know, if you think about it, if you're Tony Blair, right? So I'll take Tony Blair as sort of a gadfly of this. So he joins the Labour Party in 1983. That's, that's when it's basically just about dead. Nobody has joined in the Labour Party in 1983. Now, we can tell a story about he's this transcendental class agent who basically gets in at the right time and then turns it in the direction of money, but it's all post hoc horseshit, right? Um, here's my example of this, right? Um, how many people worked for J.P. Morgan and Morgan Stanley combined before they broke in 1977? 220. Mailroom to the very top. It's partnership. There are firms in Providence that are four times that size. Now, are you telling me that they sat down in 1977 and planned the global financial revolution, along with a few of their mates over drinks and a few big cigars? Right? That's, they had it all mapped out, right? By the time of the financial crisis, uh, JP Morgan, leaving Morgan Stanley to the side, had 67,500 employees in. 112 countries, if I remember correctly. Now, you can do a post-hoc and say, who benefited from all this? It was finance. Look, they were tiny, and now they're massive, right? Did that mean they planned it? No. So take Tony Blair. What is Tony Blair? Tony Blair's an opportunist. Gerhard Schroeder was an opportunist. They joined a party that was already dead. They did a leverage buyout for basically something that was busted. They stuck some new trendy ideas in it that everybody wanted to believe called the third way. And they were all bored with existing governments who for three terms had basically ruled Cole, Thatcher, etc. And suddenly they found themselves in a position of power. And at that point in time, what's going on? What, what's making money? What's doing things? If you live in London, it's finance. So you develop a business model that says, hey, I know how this works, right? 
I'm going to tax the shit out of bankers. And I'm going to redistribute down to the bottom 20%. And the bottom 40, well, I'm not going to give it the bottom 40% because the bottom 20% don't vote. We're going to give them called ASBOs, anti-social behaviour orders, and we're going to give them more policing. So, you know, that, that's what you do with the really poor. But, you know, those people, we can, we can redistribute down. So your entire business model of politics evolves out of this ad hocery to basically allowing finance to do whatever it wants because it's a money pump that you can then tax the hell out of at 40 odd percent and then redistribute down. And if you look at Britain's Gini coefficient, it goes up in the 1980s, goes up in the 1990s, starts to level off in the 2000s and is going down into the crisis. So from their point of view on a day-to-day -day level, this works. Now, you know, they're then going to conferences and other people are telling them that this is how the world works and Ben Bernanke's writing papers called The Great Moderation that says that we've abolished the business cycle and, and central banks do inflation targeting and monetary policy is dominant over fiscal and we know what's going on and it's great. And how do you know, you know what's going on? Because things are stable. And because things have been stable, that's evidence that what you're doing is right. And it continues and it continues and it continues until it doesn't. It's like the day the smoker gets cancer. Suddenly it's all regret. Suddenly it's all hindsight. If only I'd known, if only I'd stopped. Well, people were telling you along the way. But you were making money. Things were pretty stable. You thought you were genuinely doing a good job. You were actually helping some people along the way. The business model itself was kind of screwed up. But we could tell that story here with the Clintons. We can tell that story with the SPD and the decline of the SPD in Germany. We can tell that in Sweden. That's what happened to the left. It wasn't a great paradigm shift in their mind. The ideas were important. There were people behind it pushing agendas, no doubt. But on a day-to-day -day level of politics, as the world changes, as the economy evolves, you have to make sense of this incredibly complex reality. And they did what they thought they could do within the constraints they perceived. Turned out, taking us to a place that none of us wanted to go to. And when it did when it did all blow up with the um, with the financial crisis, um, how how did those those ideas that had uh, become ascendant in the eighties and nineties shape their response to it with a limited stimulus in the U.S. and uh, austerity in Europe? Well, it's ideas, but it's also personality. I mean, you know, let's think about you know Obama's legacy. So you know, he came to power with his own economic team. He came to power with his own foreign policy team. And within short order, he fired a lot of them. And suddenly, who came back? Larry Summers, Bob Rubin, all the people who brought you the financial crisis. Now, the Brits have a phrase, you know, the poacher turned gamekeeper, right? You know, or it takes a thief to catch a thief. But, you know, you can take that a bit far. And they did. And that was basically, you know, I designed a system that blew up the world, so I'm the perfect guy to fix it. <laughs> really? I'm the guy who came into your house, broke in, shot on your coffee table. I'm the perfect one to wipe it up. <laughs> Not entirely sure that follows its logic, but there you go. But again, think about the politics of this. There's somebody who's basically, he was, was, he, he was a first-term congressman, was that right? He was second, second time, right? So he's, he's a baby for politics, right? But he hits the moment of the right thing. He energizes a movement, which he completely allows to atrophy the minute he gets into power, by the way. Um, but nonetheless, you know, he comes in, he does all the stuff, he talks a good game, etc. He energizes all these people, he gets in, and then suddenly you have to govern the most important country in the world in the middle of a giant financial crisis. You're a very brave person if you turn around when everybody else is turning around you and saying, you need to talk to Larry Summers. He's the smartest guy in the room. And you go, no, no, really, he's not. He needs to get the hell away from me. Um, 
And then it's foreign policy, and somebody says you need to talk to X or Y or whoever it is. And there's a permanent government there. I mean, it's called the federal bureaucracy, and it's called Bethesda, and all the people who shop at Whole Foods there, right? And this sort of, like, coterie of people who never have skin in the game for the consequences of the decisions, who for whom foreign policy is, who are we going to drone next week, right? Because that's what it ultimately devolved down to. So you have this disconnect between the reality of governing the moment you find yourselves in, trying to interpret the complexity of this in normal times, let alone in moments of crisis. So I'm not letting anybody off the hook, but I don't want to actually say, oh, there was this guy with this idea who pushed this or whatever. I mean, these make for great kind of like New Yorker stories, but it's not really how we arrive at things. Think about your own life experience. Think about dealing with something you know really well, your siblings. Think about the complexity of all the bullshit. There's not everybody's got one sibling who's a total fucker, right? Think about the complexity of dealing with them and what they do with all of your other relatives. Now, you have, this is like a very simple interaction amongst half a dozen people. Everybody knows what the score is, and yet they can blow up your world. Now, yeah, you know that. Now, scale. <laughs> I, I had that cousin too. Um, so, scale that up, right? I mean, that, that's it, that's the gig. So, again, I'm not letting anybody off on this sort of stuff, but let's appreciate how this stuff happens. Because if you recognize how complex, fractured, and sort of like weird the whole thing is, it makes what's happening now and who got into power not so weird. Because it's that moment, it's that moment of uncertainty where people have, in a sense, been crying into a deaf ear for so long that the minute anyone comes along and says, Oh yeah, you guys, you got totally screwed. You used to have assets in the middle of the country and basically people on the coast came in and kind of sold them off and then re-intermediated that through the banks that they've just kind of like boosted and then that turned into a bunch of housing bubbles and then then that got bust, they got bailed out, you got screwed again, you got nothing. You got a diet of like austerity, but never mind, they got that, they got bailed out. And now they own everything and they're telling you every time you open up the media and the papers or whatever, that all your jobs are going to be replaced by robots. How do you feel? <laughs> Seriously. If I was in the Midwest, if I, so the class background I come from, very simple. It's called the army, prison, or drugs, right? That's pretty much the options. I'm not exaggerating, right? Now, if I grew up where I grew up and stayed where I stayed, etc., and a Trump figure came along, yeah, I could see myself going for it. It's not stupidity. Because everybody in my life experience who's come to my state as we've developed a meth epidemic, a healthcare crisis, our budgets have collapsed, our schools are shit, we can't fill the potholes in our roads, and every government comes in and cuts more and more. And everybody comes in every four years, both Republican and Democrat, and goes, vote for me, jobs, vote for me, it'll be great, right? So you do this first time, you're like, ah, eh, all right. Second time, eh. third time, you're like, you're just a bunch of liars. You're total liars. After six iterations, Someone comes in and you go, they're a bullshit artist. I know they're a bullshit artist. But what's the upside with a liar? Nothing. What's the upside with a bullshit artist? Hope. Or at the very least, schadenfreude. <laughs> because you know what? You guys will share my downside for a change. That's very powerful. It's a... Uh... It's obviously not just Trump here, it's uh, UKIP, it's Marie Le Pen, uh, Geert Wilders in the Netherlands. Um, 
all people you really want wouldn't want to be locked in a room with for a long time. I, I, I a long time being defined as about eight minutes. I didn't even mention uh, Gordon, Gordon Don yet. Yeah, uh, yeah, no, exactly. Really charming. Um, did it have to be the far right that took advantage of the crisis, or could the left have? have All right. So? so this is some. So I'm, I'm, I've just written a book in London uh, with a mate of mine called Eric Lonergan, who is everyone hiss at this point in time. Eric Lonergan is a hedge fund manager. That's right. Exactly right. But you know he's a nice guy. Anyway, and even hedge fund managers don't want the world to blow up because they have children too, right? So anyway, we had the, part of what we were talking about was trying to figure out why this was. And so the two ways that we reconcile it is a kind of micro story and a macro story. On a micro level, in moments of uncertainty, what do you like? You want to basically make the environment more stable. So if you feel that things are constantly beyond you, they're constantly out of control, and you see difference coming towards you, whether it's ethnic, whether it's across classes, whether it's in terms of opinions, right? you want to basically push that out. So, you know, the internet and racism become the same thing in this regard. Like, you, know, you only want to listen to the things you want to listen to. You only want to be close to the things you want to be close to, close to. So the more kind of volatile and upset the world is, the more that you crave the security of things you, you like and understand and people who are like you. Now, the national version of this is the nation. Because the, the weird thing about democracy is democracy only happens in nation states. So you have national boundaries, and you have a notion of a national community. And when the patriots play tomorrow, everybody will stand up and sing a national anthem, right? So we're all in it together, but we're not, because I go to Whole Foods, and you, know, you go here, or whatever, right? But there's that pretense of that being together. In moments of crisis, that becomes real. In moments when people feel under threat, that really becomes real. Think about 9-11, think about the reaction to that. So there's a kind of a micro-dynamic. The second one is the nation's kind of the default container for this when things go wrong. So back in 1944, there's a guy called Carl Poyani, who I, sh I riffed off shamelessly in my first book. He did The Great Transformation. I did Great Transformations. I know. My next book's called The Bibles. <laughs> and Das Kapitals. <laughs> but what Poyani, I think it's chapter 21 of that book, because um, I've read it a few times. And it's called, it's a brilliant, I mean, it says it all, right? Liberal internationalism leads to national socialism. So the more that you try and basically turn everybody and everything into, and this is something Bannon gets, by the way, he totally gets this. The minute you try and turn the entire world into a balance sheet and everything in it, a commodity, turns out that, like, labor is, and apologies to anybody who's ever been in one of my classes, I use this analogy all the time, labor is not a bag of porcini mushrooms. It actually gives a shit about its price. And if it's constantly going down, and it can constantly see other porcini mushrooms that aren't going down, it gets a little bit annoyed. And land, and capital, and sort of all the things that we take as sort of, you know, the, the primitives of the world, when they're all commodified, when Boston becomes a place that's too expensive to live in, which is mental if you think about it on any level, right? <laughs> I mean, they should be given that place away. But, <laughs> And I say that as somebody who still has a condo in Boston, in Southie. It's great if you're Scottish and you live in Southie because you've got all these fake Irish people. So let me, let me be ethnic for a minute, right? So basically, they think I'm one of them. Now, I am because my mother was Irish, right? So I can legitimately live in Southie and run around, right? But my accent is about as far removed from an Irish accent as like, I don't know, let's say someone from the Muppets, right? That would be, that'd be the closest analogy, right? 
And I could go into bar after bar in Southie, and they'd be like, oh, where are you from in the old country? And I'd be like, Dundee. And they're like, oh, great. And it's like, it's in Scotland. <laughs> Never mind, free beer for me. Um, anyway, rolling that back, where were we at Dundee? I used to be a comic, so basically I get so depressed doing this stuff that every now and again I have to bust out into just doing comedy, because otherwise we all shoot ourselves. <laughs> now, back through Boston, Southie, Southie to, what the hell are we talking about? Uh, did it have to be the far right or could the left have That's it, exactly right. right. So back to this is the macro stuff about nationalism, right? So basically, as you know, as he says, when you basically turn everything into one giant market and everyone's a commodity, and you're actually in competition with people on the other side of the planet for the work that you do, then what do you crave? You crave a kind of localism. You crave a connectivity. You want to be part of a community. And the one thing that the right has got locked up way more than the left ever has, because we're all internationalists. We're all cosmopolitans. But we've got that weird kind of cosmopolitan, where it's a cosmopolitanism based on sort of a notion of equality and a notion of equivalence and a notion of basically friendship. Whereas what the right has is, yes, we're the same, we're the same, you're not. And that's fine, you can have your not land, but it's not our land. Now, democracy operates in those spaces which are national spaces. So those two things together, uncertainty reduction, plus the fact that the default container for politics is the nation, privileges, I think, a right-wing reaction. And it's also because for the past 25 years, the mainstream left has been so useless at messaging that it's not even clear where you would sign up for the alternative. I mean, please tell me, who is the French left? What's their address? Where can I meet them? What the policies might be? I mean, it's truly pathetic. You know, the, the, the guy who currently, you know the guy who looks like Inspector Clouseau, who's actually the president of France? <laughs> it's true, he does. He looks like Clouseau. I'd like to rent a room, right? I mean, he looks like him, right? He looks like him, but has a lower, has a far low, lower no, public approval. No, this rating. is it, right? So, you know, sorry, it's a pop quiz, right? So, Bush is Bush the younger, right? Bush the fetus, the one that used to be the government, right? Um, so... His popularity rate, rating, lowest ever, was 29%, which basically meant one in three people still thought Iraq was a good job, right? So there you go. So, and you wonder where madness comes from. There is, actually, I saw, was anybody at, uh, what's his name, uh, uh, Black, uh, last night? Lewis Black? Lewis Black was here in Providence last night. He did a big show. Nobody went to it? Yeah, there you go, exactly, that would be it, exactly, yes, point taken, thank you for that, absolutely. I mugged an old lady for mine, so I was all right. Uh, she worked in Whole Foods. <laughs> uh, where was I? Uh, uh, the uh, French uh, press. Yes, that's it, right. Anyway, his, his approval rating is brilliant, 4%. <laughs> I mean, how do you have to try hard to get to 4%. I mean, Donald says all the things Donald does, and he still gets like 40%, which is truly remarkable, right? But 4%? So when you've done such a crap job messaging and actually standing for things that people might get behind, you know, there's no surprise. Now, let's bring Bernie into the conversation, right? Any Bernie fans here? Yeah. Right, absolutely, right? What did he do? He basically, in our language, given our concerns, given our values, he articulated everything that they do. But he put it in such a way that we went, shit, yeah, that's right, that's obvious, we need to do something about that. And what happened? The elites of our party cut his legs off. 
That's it, stone cold truth. We know this. Now, how do we get past that? It's dead easy. It's called the fact that everybody in here is half my age. <laughs> Who is it that votes? Old people. <laughs> two to one over millennials. Boomers vote two to one. Boomers have 75% of the assets. Now, there are Democrat boomers. There are even Marxist boomers. Some of them are really good people. Nobody's individually bad in this one. It's a kind of generation meets class story, right? But now you have an advantage. You know what the advantage is, you millennials? Society advances one funeral at a time. <laughs> and the boomers are going to die first. You already outnumber them, but you never outvote them. Because there's nobody to get behind. You had that for a moment when 12 million people got energized. And it was truly a threat to the democratic establishment, which is how it had to be stopped. And they stopped it. And the price of stopping it is where we are now. Do you think if, uh, if Bernie and Trump had been in a general election that uh, Bernie could have done something that Clinton obviously couldn't, which was paint a compelling us and them picture to compete with Trump's really terrifying us and them? I think that's exactly the case. And I, I, what's even more interesting is if you break it down and you look on a county level in the five states in the so-called blue wall that the mainstream Democrats didn't even bother to visit apart from Michigan in the last month because they were so sure that these people who basically are like, what have you done for me in the past 25 years? Nothing. Are going to constantly show up for them, right? Talk about basic arrogance on this one, right? No, let's spend money in LA and New York so we can like scoosh the popular vote to put the icing on the cake. I hate to break it to you, you don't have a cake, right? The cake's rotten and it's falling down inside, right? Half of those counties voted for Obama, not once but twice. What do you think the message they were listening to was? Do you think it was basically everything's fine? Or do you think it was one that's like we really need to change shit? I think absolutely if he had won, if he had uh, won the nomination, he would have maintained those states. And if he had maintained those states, he would have won. That's it, it's that simple. Um, you write uh, in your book, Austerity, um, about why for establishment elites the financial and economic crisis was unforeseeable. Do you think that both Trump and Bernie were unforeseeable to the establishment for similar reasons, for similar shortcomings in their imagination? Yeah, that's, that's a nice analogy. So, all right, so why do I think it was unforeseeable? Well, we've kind of touched on it. You know, you've got the guy who runs the central bank when the crisis hits, writing papers four years previously saying the world's flat, well, there are no more economic crises, right? You've basically got people in, in economics saying that if you just target inflation, let markets do what they do, uh, even if finance is on this incredible tear, inequality doesn't matter. Why doesn't it matter? Because one person's debt's another person's income. Yeah, I suppose that's true on some level, but you know, it seems different when basically I'm running over you in my Mercedes, right? But you know, we'll just you know go with it that way, right? But there's that kind of like everyday blindness that goes on. So everyone's convinced it's the best of all possible worlds. Um, the, the, the regulatory framework for banks was if you make individual banks safe, then the system is safe. But that ignores the fact that the system is different from the sum of its parts. So if every bank is borrowing the same as every other bank and using the other asset as the same hedge, they're all in housing and they're all using equities as the hedge, then the whole system is massively linked in in ways which you can't see. 
Now, you know that when it goes bang, it's sort of like, how do you know how to gas leak? Because my house blew up, right? You didn't really know that until the house blew up, right? And nobody had any incentives to put alarms in to figure this because they didn't even know they had a gas leak. So yeah, there was certainly blindness. Does that translate into politics just now? Absolutely. Because the alternative is just an, an incredible lack of foresight, um, intelligence, empathy, and just colossal arrogance. So, you know, I'm a nice guy. I want to go with, like, they didn't see it. They couldn't see it, given where they were, rather than the alternative. Now, I'll give you some examples of this. Um, did any of you go to Senator Clinton's website? Put your hand up if you did. So, first of all, hardly any of you went to the website to figure out what this stood for. Right, now, number one. Now, for those of you who went to the website, do you remember how it was organized? Bingo, alphabetically. It was alphabet, taught a sense of priorities, right? Alphabetically. The first one was Alzheimer's. Serious problem. But the problem is everybody who reads that who's got Alzheimer's is gonna to forget to vote for you. <laughs> so that's a bit of a problem, right? Um, the second one, again, very, very serious problem is campus rape. Absolutely, not making a joke about it, right? Then the next one was whatever, and the next one was whatever, and I have this kind of like, lib things liberals care about in a random order. <laughs> what does that sum up to? What does the other guy have? You've been totally screwed. Combination of your own elites, China, and basically Brown and other people who are not white, uh, have totally destroyed the world. Uh, we're in crisis. It's terrible. It's terrifying. Vote for me. I'm the only one who can restore order and make America great again. Content-wise, empty bullshit. Politically and rhetorically, incredibly effective. Particularly if the alternative is A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K. Where do you go with that? Or what's your favorite ice cream? Well, I like all of them. I like all of them. Right. Yeah, exactly. Or, or sort of the, the, the brilliant video of, um, uh, of uh, Clinton taking shots in a bar somewhere. I think it was West Virginia trying to like get there with people. And it was just brilliant. I've never seen somebody actually take a shot and they pull the lip over their head. They were just in so much pain with the whole thing. Like not one of the people, right? You just sent the signal, not one of the people, right? And then you've got somebody who's totally not one of the people on the other side. He's really good at faking it. The guy eats a McDonald's with a fork and knife. Who the does that? <laughs> and yet he's able to convince everyone he that he understands. He doesn't drink. So actually, it's a good, good acid test on this. Comedy diversion. Um, so my I was raised by my grandmother, who was a sort of legendary sort of psychopathic alcoholic, um, who lived until she was 94. I think she was actually the reincarnation of Lucretia Borgia. I mean, I'm serious. Like, she actually poisoned members of the family, right? I'm sure of this, right? But she had an acid test for whether people were good people or not, and it's, it's one that I think is brilliant. So here's what it is. Um, so I'll ask all of you, right? Um, if you like cats, put your hand up. Now, if you don't like cats, please be honest, put your hand up. Great, keep your hand up if you don't like cats. Now, keep your hand up if you don't like cats and you don't drink alcohol. Exactly. Yeah, there's one, you're the error term, it's fine, you're okay, but really, that's the kind of thing you need to watch for. Now, let's do this one. Do you not drink and you eat McDonald's with a fork and knife? Do you think gold is awesome? Do you cover everything you own in brass? Yes. It would be the same test, right? And somehow we managed to actually not do better than that. Astonishing. So you're, you're, you're very 
uh, generous in terms of the motivations that um, political and economic elites had in running us into the crisis. But once the crisis hits, uh, why did they, they keep persevere doubling down? with austerity and neoliberalism? Why, why that? Well, that, that's the sort of the capital error. So the, the book that I did was called uh, Austerity, the, His the History of a Dangerous Idea. And the subtitle tells you the important bit. So it's, it's a seductive idea. So on, on a micro level, if you're not that smart, and uh, I mean this in the sense that politicians really are not that smart. Like, they may be well-meaning or whatever, but, you know, think about it. One minute you're the MP for Merthyr Tidwell, your, your, your party gets elected to government, and suddenly you're the, uh, the cabinet member who's responsible for a portfolio of, let's say, education. See, what, what has actually prepared you for this, right? Nothing, right? It's complete nonsense, right? So most finance ministers have no idea what they're talking about. Literally, it's written down, they read it out, and then they go have lunch, right? That's how this shit works, right? So why does it get so bad? Partly because of that, partly because everybody believes the simple analogy. And the simple analogy is this. Well, we've got a crisis. Why do we have a crisis? We have a crisis because we spent too much. Well, why have we spent too much? I, don't, I wasn't aware we were spending too much. Well, we have. I mean, if you think about it, people have been telling us for years that like, government spends too much. Oh, yeah, that's true. And if you look at it, right, you know, we've got all this debt. How much debt have we got? Well, think about America. America is like, and this is pre-crisis figures, um, America has um, 40 net, 60 gross percent of GDP. Well, what's that in dollar terms? Well, in a $15 trillion economy, it's about $9 trillion, $10 trillion. We have $10 trillion in debt? That's mental. That's crazy. Yeah, no, it's not. Well, actually, now, because of all the bailouts and the whole thing, we've now got 100%. So we've got $17 trillion in debt. That's bonkers. I mean, if you were a family, you'd be like, I mean, you're sure you have to tighten your belt, right? I mean, you've spent too much. You have to reel it in, right? This is how you do it. Now, a couple of things one should always be aware of. Number one, states are not families. States with nuclear weapons are not families. Um, states that can bring immigrants in before they get weird about it and then tax them over the next 10 generations while the economy is growing are not families. You don't get to issue your own money. You can try, but it's not going to go well, right? Um, states are not families. But to explain all that, you need to actually take that extra step and explain it. Whereas if you just say... Well, if my family gets into trouble, what we need to do is tighten our belts. So we all need to tighten our belts. Well, yeah, but you're not wearing the same trousers. Right? When, when they tighten their belts, they die. And when you tighten your belt, your gigantic belly has a little pinch. Because that's inequality. So who's exactly doing the tightening? Well, it's the people who are going to suffer when government services are cut, not the ones who rely wholly on private sector alternatives already. Oh, and of course, we should always cut. We shouldn't raise taxes because that would be bad, right? So you can see, you know, exactly how this thing plays through. So who votes again? Oh, it's right. It's the old. And it's also the old and the rich, right? So the following is true. It is absolutely true that not old people, all old people are rich. Absolutely true. It is absolutely true that all rich people are old. <laughs> and they all vote. So what are your incentives as a politician? Now, you find yourself in this existential crisis with the European monetary crisis, when basically the Greeks, are, they do the worst thing possible. They tell the truth. So what, what, here's the short version of what happened in Europe, right? So basically, everyone's like, oh, it's a, the Germans used to say this. This is a crisis of Anglo-Saxon capitalism. Our banks are much more credential, and we don't do this shit. And it's like, really? The largest unbanked derivatives desk in the world, the most levered institution in the world, was Deutsche Bank which is why it's still shit, right? That's basically it, and why it's, right? 
Commerce Bank's not much better. If you take Commerce Bank and Deutsche Bank together with 120% of GDP, their asset footprint, those assets are nothing more than credit claims on everything from derivatives to car loans. That, that's it. That's the whole thing. And if it goes south, you blow up the German economy. The top three French banks, just before the crisis, 232% of GDP. The top four British banks at the same period, 458% of GDP. The top three Icelandic banks, 1,000% of GDP. Remember that thing about the United States having debt to GDP of 100%? So let's do a little calculation here. How many of you have a mortgage? Right, if you have a mortgage, let's say the average house price around this neck of the woods is about, keep it simple, 250,000, right? Let's say you earn 50,000 a year. That means that your debt to GDP ratio is, have a guess, five times the United States. Because if the United States is a $17 trillion economy and a $17 trillion debt, that's 100. If you have 50,000 and you have 250,000 outstanding, you're five times as levered as the United States. Deutsche Bank, on an average Tuesday during the crisis, was running 66 to 1 leverage, which meant a turn against its assets of 3% rendered it technically insolvent. So how did it survive? It lied. Anybody here from Providence College? Anybody here? Right. So, uh, Ruti Benazri, her brother was a mathematician who blew the whistle on Deutsche Bank and was hung out to dry for five years, finally got seven million in a whistleblower settlement because he said that they had lied about the state of the derivatives book. They were actually bankrupt in the crisis. Now, this is the type of thing you have to go through if you really want to explain to people what the is going on. So the Greeks wake up one day, change government, decide to tell the truth that their budget deficit is twice as big as it is. They're filled with old people, they don't make very much, and the euro's expensive, so it's hard to, go, hard to be a tourist in Greece, you go to Turkey instead. So the world's depressed, the banks are freaked out, they go, shh, I need to get rid of my Greek stuff, because obviously they're bankrupt, they can't pay this. Now, if I get rid of my Greek stuff, and I'm running 50 to 1 operational leverage, a 2% turn against my assets wipes me out, I can't book that loss. I need to sell something first, cover that loss, an anticipation of loss I'm going to sell. So I look around and I go, who looks Greek? Portugal. So I'm going to have to bump Portugal. So I start dumping Portuguese assets. Now, you're all part of the same trading network. You're all other traders and bankers. And you see yields on Portuguese starting to go up. And you're like, shit, I better get rid of that stuff. So you start to dump it. But you don't want to make a loss on Greece and Portugal, so you need to sell something that's still got value. Ireland! Ireland, so you start to dump Ireland. And then suddenly you're like, well, who else? Portugal, Ireland, Greece, Spain. Remember the pigs? Right? So, problem with Spain, Spain's big. If everybody dumps Spain all at once and Spain goes to zero, the assets of the European banking system evaporate in an instant. So, given that nobody has their own printing press anymore because of the euro, great idea that one, um, you can't inflate your way out of trouble, you can't swap your bonds for cash you can print, you can't actually devalue because you don't have your own exchange rate, and you can't default because you'll blow up the world. So the only thing you can do is basically tighten that belt. Now you don't want to do it, you know it's going to be counterproductive, you know that it's going to not just hurt, it's going to eat away huge parts of your GDP, you're going to end up with more debt rather than less. But if the price of saving the European banking system is basically 3 to 4% of Eurozone GDP in the form of Portugal and primarily Greece, 
From the point of view of the European elites, that's a price worth paying. Except it was meant to rebound. It was meant to be short-term pain. It wasn't meant to take a generation's worth of people who are now unemployed at a rate under the age of 35, at 40% in some countries. Deprive them of skills, earning, investment, and everything has gone on, and basically turn their lives into a bit of a shit show. And then they see people flying to Brussels and dining out and having that sort of Whole Foods life again, and everything's fine, and they're told that Europe's on the mend, and they obviously know that Europe is not on the mend. So in Greece, they tried the left-wing alternative. They went for Syriza. And Syriza said, enough, we're not going to do it. No chance, that's it. You guys, not going to do it. What did they do? They did it. Because they don't have a printing press, they can't default, and they can't inflate. So what did that do to the credibility of the left? Welcome to Europe. Now, who's the bad guy? Uh... Troika, Merkel... Um... Or were they doing what they had to do given the, dealt, the cards that they were dealt given the way they saw the world? I mean, I could have told... I mean, very simple. I had a proposal in 2010. I floated it at the, at, uh, in Europe, and it was called, basically, do what the Americans did. The amount of Greek debt that was subject to what's called rollover risk. So, basically, you, or no country ever gets rid of its debt. The United States still has civil war debt. But the United States economy is, like, hundreds of times bigger. So, the civil war debt's hundreds of times smaller, right? So, you roll it over, right? Occasionally, you retire, but then you always issue new debt. So, the Greeks had 50 billion euros in debt coming up. And it's a lot for a small economy. But you could get the central bank to buy it. Only it was run by Trichet, who was mental. We can go into that if you want. And, basically, he refused to do this. But you could have just put it on the balance sheet. Now, we had things called uh, TARP, right? We had things called Maiden Lane. Ever heard of Maiden Lane? Anyone heard of Maiden Lane? You know this stuff. What was Maiden Lane, you know? Well, what was it? All right, so see, Maiden Lane was a private company that three guys from the Fed set up to basically take assets from a bunch of people like Lehman and bury it on the Fed's balance sheet without anybody really knowing it was part of the Fed. A bad bank. Bad bank, turn, turn the, bed into bad, the Fed into a bad bank, right? Now, this is what happens in financial crisis. You're going to run capitalist systems, right? You need a lender of last resort. When the shit hits the fan, they buy the bad assets, they shut down the bad institutions, they lend liquidity to the ones that are surviving at a punitive rate, they fire the guys who blew it up, you jail some of them, and you start again, right? It was called bail, fail, and send to jail. This time, we did bail, no fail, no jail. Right? That's pretty much the incentive. So think about what that sets up for the next time. Right? So in the European context, right, what happens on this one? You've got this on a transcontinental scale. You have Germans buying Greek debt who then owe money to Spain, who owe it to Italy. How do you unpack that? None of them have a currency. How do you unpack this stuff? So much easier just to put your foot on the Greeks and tell them you're going nowhere because the price of you going somewhere is you blow up the bond markets of Europe. That's not going to happen. Now, is that a good call or a bad call? You're a German politician. How are you going to do that? Tough one. Do you think that the people pushing the notion that the bank, what was in reality a banking crisis, was actually a crisis caused by government spending, which it wasn't, do you think they actually believe that? Or do you think, I keep uh, trying to get you to ascribe cynical intention, motivations to people, do you think that uh, they were, they were, pushing that, knowing that it was... Oh, well, certainly false. some of them were. I mean, you know, particularly, uh, you know, there's some um, 
Italian economists from the Bocconi School who basically always think that any and all government spending is absolutely terrible and this was a wonderful moment in which you could then use this as an excuse to get rid of it. Um, some parts of the German finance ministry have always been extremely conservative in the sense of monetary conservatism uh, and they've never liked government spending and the notion that you would spend your way out of a recession just like literally makes no sense to them. Uh, and also given the structure of the German economy, there's a reason they think this way. So, anybody here own a German car? Yeah, right. I just handed back my TDI, right? So, you know, the, the, this is Dieselgate, that whole thing. So, when, when Volkswagen got in touch with me and said, you know, we need to hand in the car, you needed to give your account a name, so I called mine Der Polluterwagen. Because <laughs> I just thought that would annoy someone somewhere along the line. They'd have to process the farm that said Der Polluterwagen. But I hated handing back this car because it was so Right? I mean, I got 500 miles to a tank, right? It went pretty fast. It's incredibly well made and it costs 25 grand. What's there not to like? Now, why is it the Germans don't like spending money in a recession, Keynesian policy? Because if you boost wages at a time when productivity isn't rising, what's going to happen to the price of that car you're selling in the United States? Right. Now, they've got what's called the best elasticities in the world in their export goods, which means the following in plain English. If that BMW costs 50,000, you'll buy it. If it costs 55,000, you'll still buy it. If it costs 65,000, you'll think again. If you're a Chevy, first of all, you're not getting a 60,000. But if it was 40 or 42, you'll swap it for a Mazda. So the Germans have got a bit of an insurance cushion on this one because of the quality of their goods. But isn't it better if you can just be super competitive in your wages? So all the way during the 2000s, what they were doing right under the surface was massive equity investment into Eastern Europe, rebuilding plant and equipment and factories. And you've got countries like Romania that have this great tradition of mathematicians and engineers, and they're cheapest ships in comparison to German workers. So the Mercedes plant for doing transmission is in Romania, and then that gets assembled somewhere else, like kind of globalization just on a European scale, and that pushes their cost down. Now along comes the rest of the world and it's like, hey, there's been a huge financial crisis. We all need to spend money. You know it totally makes sense. They go, yeah, but not for us. It doesn't make any sense for us to do this. Now if you're responsible to that German public and you're responsible to that German economy and all the people in Eastern Europe that have bought into your export-led growth model, what are you meant to do? Should you show solidarity with Greece or should you look after your own workers? Ooh, tough one. So yeah, lots of cynical assholes spread really, really bad ideas, but it really breaks apart much more discreetly in terms of the real sort of interests that are play. I mean, there's also people who are just Muppets, right? So like Muppet number one was George Osborne. I mean, George Osborne, the British Chancellor, I mean, he really did believe deep down inside that just cutting public spending on its own creates growth, right? I mean, and then you, you go through things and it's like, all right, so let's say, I'm a teacher, I work for the state, and I'm not a teacher, I don't know, I pack ice cream in a factory in the private sector. So when we both go to the supermarket and spend money, mine is simply a retransfer from taxation, but they're somehow adding to growth, right? That's what you'll actually need to have in your head if you think that that model is true. And there's no way in which, in God's creation, that could actually be true. I mean, the functional effect of spending is set. But that doesn't matter. We all need to tighten our belts, we all need to spend, we all need to cut rather than spend, etc. And it becomes very seductive because again, let's go back to old people with lots of money. What is it that old people care about? Inflation. Right? Because inflation eats away at fixed incomes. So you like price stability. 
You bitch about low interest rates because of savings, but you've actually already made outlet bandits over the past 35 years anyway, so you don't really give a damn. And most of your stuff's in equities. So it's not in, it's not in, it's not in the corner store savings bank where you're getting half a percent. You're basically riding the S&P 500. So you're doing fine. You like it just as it is. Now you have to bail out the Greeks. How do you sell that, even if you want to? How much in Germany does their view uh, have to do with a misreading of what led to the rise of national socialism? Not that you're diving into one specific part of that book. Uh, all right, so, so you've all heard of the German hyperinflation, right? So, you know, the wheelbarrows, you've seen the thing, the money, all that sort of stuff. And this is the one that's drawn out all the time and sort of, you know, the reason the Germans think this way is because they've got the trauma over hyperinflation. And there's a great German word which covers this, which is Jein, which means yes and no. Um, it's true that they do think this way. So I'm married into a family of Germans. It's the only reason I'm still alive. And, because um, although it's just, right. Um, so they keep me on the straight and narrow. Um, but, this is really true, it really is. Uh, but, uh, so, so, you know, the, the inflation story, the first real historical story of the inflation wasn't right until 1970. And prior to that, it was all basically folk songs and family stories about, oh, during the great inflation, your great aunt Bettina buried hamsters in the garden and, you know, blacked as black magic or whatever you did, right? <laughs> and it was all just anecdotal. There was nothing there. And then the story grew up in the 1970s, a period when they had inflation, right, in the global economy, about how this was the worst thing ever, look what happened, and it totally justified the Germans basically squeezing at a time when everybody else was boosting, we've been here before, and then riding out what was then a relatively mild recession and saying, see, I told you that was the thing to do. Now, the funny thing is, if you actually go back into it, the whole thing back in 1923 was a deliberate government policy. So what actually happened was the Germans woke up every morning after the Weimar Treaty was signed, after World War I, when they lost. They didn't really lost. What happened was the Americans showed up and they went, ah, oh, God, do we have to keep doing this? It's just pointless at this point. And they basically gave up, right? And when they gave up, they expected reasonable terms. And the French said, no. So the French basically wrote a treaty where 40 cents of every mark that was going to be produced for the next 20 years was going straight back to Paris. That's nice of your Jean-Claude, isn't it? I don't need to get on work very hard. 40 cents of every day is going to be paid for by Fritz over the border. That's fantastic. How do you think Fritz feels about this? Not too good. So the German economy is quite dynamic. They get a lot of uh, capital flowing in from America after the war. You get the Roaring Twenties. Ever seen the film Cabaret? Captures a lot yeah. about that, right? And uh, everything's going well, basically, but it's kind of not, and it's short-term credit, and things aren't really sort of like solved from the war or political conflict. And the government basically decides, right, let's screw the French. Because if I'm getting up every day and spending 40 cents of every single mark that I make and handing it over to these guys, the hell with that. So what they basically do is they allow their exchange rate to just plummet through the floor. And when they do that, the cost of imports and the cost of borrowing and capital, etc., go through the roof. And it generates a huge inflation. Now, the whole thing is this wiped out the middle class's savings. No, World War I wiped out the middle class's savings. There were none already. That's why after the war, they were so pissed off. So all this did was basically take a hammer to what was already a broken system. But it had an incredible payoff. In doing that, the French basically couldn't get anything out of the economy. The entire system grew into a halt. So the French invaded part of Germany and occupied land. Way to go. Made you look really good, right? And they did that. And the Germans went, what the fuck is this? 
At that point, the Americans showed up and said, right, here's the deal. Why did we show up? Because we've been lending the Germans money and the French money and everybody money. So we wanted our money back. So there was a guy called Dawes, and Dawes came along, worked for Morgan, of course, and said, uh, right, you guys all go, all go to your corner. Um, here's what we're going to do. Uh, the French are going to take 20% less. May not, maybe. So you're over there. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to do what's called a seniority swap in the debt hierarchy. Whenever you have debt in financial markets, there's a thing called the hierarchy or seniority ladder. And you heard this in the financial crisis, like bonds were junior, mezzanine, senior, right? So it's basically about who gets paid back first. And what they did was they swapped commercial credits and war credits. So the French got paid first, and then the Americans said, no, 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 we get paid first. Commercial credits get paid first. Suddenly there's seniority to commercial credits. What was before World War I the growth economy in the world? Germans. What was the one that had caught up with the Brits in 40 years? The Germans. What was the one if the Americans hadn't actually joined in, probably would have won World War I? The Germans. So we're looking for returns, we've got tons of capital, we just start pouring it into Germany. Welcome to the Roaring Twenties. Now you get to the end of this period, we've all got so much money going on, we have the Wall Street boom going on at the same time. And the Federal Reserve says, oof, belatedly as usual, maybe we should jack up interest rates because all that stuff that's going on in the, in the stock market, it's bonkers, right? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. We need to stop people borrowing on margin and spending all the money in the stock market, it could go bad. So they pushed up interest rates to 7%. Real rate of return in the German investments was about 5%. So what happens? Remember seniority of commercial credits? All that money sucks out of Germany, flies back into America. Where do you think it goes? Straight into the stock market. Welcome to the Wall Street crash. And then in 1929, when all this is settled, the Americans restore seniority to the war credits. So the French, now the German economy has blown up not once but twice, actually says, now you pay me back. There's a guy called Hitler who said, enough. Strangely resonant at that time. And today, Angela Merkel is seen by many as like the last great defender of the political um, center and the European and global economic order. And she deserves a lot of credit for letting uh, refugees from, from Syria and elsewhere into Germany. But what role did the austerity that they were pushing lead to the very forces that are now undermining, threatening her government and, and governments across Europe? Well, the austerity link into Germany is a weird one because their austerity is self-enforced. It's baked into the cake. It's the whole thing of controlling labor, controlling labor costs. So in the decade prior to the crisis, German industrial wages, the most, probably the most efficient workers in the world, who work with some of the biggest endowments of capital in the world, are incredibly productive, their wages hadn't risen for a decade either. So although there's a lot of transfers in the system, particularly around families and children, it's a big welfare state. For industrial workers, it was kind of the same shitty story that was going on everywhere else. Their wages weren't going up. Why? Because for them, globalization happened 60 kilometers outside of Berlin. It was called Eastern Europe. So you don't like building that golf in Wolfsburg? We'll move it to Prague. We'll make a 20% cost savings. So what do you think the German unions do? They never ask for a pay rise. So it wasn't crisis austerity, it was baked into the cake. And if you look at the returns to German capital, boom, look at the returns to German workers. Right? So you know that fragility is built in there. So if you remember that this is what's going on everywhere, that skew to capital, this is where the 1% comes from, all this stuff, right? That you've got politicians who are either blind to this, willfully blind to this, or don't think it's a problem. 
that all the returns are going one way. And the backlash to that is the moment that we're in now. So, you know, Merkel deserves credit. I mean, I don't know exactly what that means. Because the AFD is, is, isn't coming out of nowhere. The AFD is coming out of massive amount of cultural racist resentment, etc. Absolutely. But also about the fact that you finally got a platform that's outside of the mainstream parties. Because they're all a bloody coalition and all agree with each other almost permanently. You've got one party that says what everybody's thinking, right? Which is, this isn't right. Now take the, the, the refugee one again. If you're going to handle this right, just why didn't Merkel go on TV and say the following? Germany's incredibly old and almost as old as the Italians, right? Their average German's about 44 years old. So not exactly fecund, right? The replacement rate in the population is 1.4. The only way you're going to pay the pensions that they've all promised each other, which is basically a replacement rate of 80% of your final wage, is if you have a lot of new people coming in. Now, you have a chance to take in the Syrians. The Syrians invented merchant capitalism. Steve Jobs' father was a bloody Syrian, right? The Lebanese and the Syrians are the people who invented all of the good shit to do with markets. If you're going to take anybody in a crisis, you should be bidding for them. Right? That's what you need. And they will have kids. And those kids will pay the taxes so that you will still get your pension. Did Merkel say any of that? Does anyone say any of that? Does anyone on the left even make that argument? And it's the only argument worth making. You're going to immolate. You're going to destroy your own country through your own conservatism. Because an economy is nothing more than this. You ever get in an argument with anyone? Just remember this from tonight. An economy is nothing more than the number of workers, the amount of capital they have, and the number of hours they work. That's it. All the bullshit, all the math, all the moral struggle, all the way, that's the end of it. Why is the United States with 300 million people, 25% of world GDP? Because we're ridiculously, retardedly productive. Are we more productive than the French? No, but they trade it off against time because they're smarter than we are. They don't work insane hours. They get to pick up their kids at a decent hour and walk them home from school with a baguette. I think it's fabulous, right? <laughs> but all of the rich countries make different trade-offs around this, but basically that's the story, but we don't have enough kids. And if you're going to make promises to, to the current generation, you need to have somebody coming in the back to fulfill that promise. And nobody makes that argument. So, I mean, you know, you might find it weird that I'm sort of banging on boomers and generational stuff and all the rest of it, but really I've come to the conclusion that so much of this is at the heart of this, that there is this intergenerational shift. Now, I'll finish this with a little bit of microdata about my own family, right? So I have a, a father-in-law who's retired. He's German. He's very German. And he has a savings account, which is separate from his retirement account. He saves from his retirement. Uh, what the f is that for? I mean, ha have you cracked eternal life? It's a sort of like you have the fountain of youth and compound interest, right? And the two of them are going to take care of themselves. And they, you're talking about a culture that does nothing but save, right? It's a rainy day, whatever it is, right? But when you have that much capital available, the interest rate has to go through the floor. So it's super cheap to borrow. Now your banks are employing people, right? You know, they've got people they have to pay off, right? So the bank has to make the rate of return more than the existing interest rate, which is on the floor. So where do you think those banks found that money? What did they buy to get that rate of return? Greek debt. Now, why can't you explain that to your population? That, you, know what, you know why the Greeks got all that debt? Because you lent it to them. 
and they bought BMWs with it. That's how this went down. But nobody wants to tell the truth. Now bring all that back to where we were before. What did we start with? A bunch of elites who for their own reasons only talk to each other and don't want to tell people the truth. Maybe they don't know what it is. Maybe they're genuinely puzzled. Maybe they just like can't really get it through their heads. But you know, if Merkel is sort of the last line of defense and the shining example, God help us all. Speaking of people not telling the truth, uh, Trump came to office, uh, into office pledging an economic uh, nationalist agenda and uh, a populist revolt against the globalist elites and is now sacked his administration with Goldman alums and... Uh, Mike, there's a great article in New Yorker uh, just came out, uh, which is called um, From Drain the Swamp to Government by Goldman. <laughs> kind of sums it up. Yeah, so how does it play out? All right, one question first. How long have we been going on? Because uh, you don't have a time. Yeah, I'm going to... No, 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 come on, what is it? It's 8.23. Because I'm beginning to bore myself. Yeah, okay. So we're, I'm going to... Five more minutes. All right, no. Three, all right. Um, so what was the question? Um, how does it play out with uh, Trump's economic policy? All right, okay. Right. So here's a short one. And this is where... This is, so, you know, Bernie, yeah, you know, he's also a liar. Um, you can't bring manufacturing back. It's horrible, but you can't. And let's think about why. Number one, see those great manufacturing jobs? They killed your dad with asbestosis, right? They were pretty shit. They weren't great. Standing on a line in a toxic environment and then having an average life expectancy for industrial workers below 60 years old. Yeah, you know, it was better than the 1930s, but it wasn't that great. Number two, Germany. They're shedding labor in the manufacturing sector. Because at the end of the day, there's a thing that's been going on since time immemorial. It's called automation. And that's what really does it. It's not just the robots that are going to replace it. This has been going on forever. So in the industrial sector, capital substitutes for labor really efficiently. And everybody does it. Because if you don't, the other firm will. And they will get your order and you will go out of business. So so long as you have a competitive dynamic amongst firms, you simply have to respond to this. So unless you're going to get to a world in which you really shut off the economy from the rest of the world, kind of India style in the 50s and 60s, and you have three versions of the car, and you're going to make those cars, and they're the only cars you can buy, and that guarantees that those workers have jobs, I don't see how you do this. So Germany short 300,000 industrial engineers. That's a lot. If you've got a great engineering degree, you can go to the Milchstand, you can get a job, you can do fine, all the rest of it. It's a huge part of their economy. They've got an 8% surplus in terms of exports. They're the largest um, sort of like um, quality uh, adjusted exporter in the world, even bigger than China. And uh, yet they're only 180 million people, right? So an incredible manufacturing sector. Their manufacturing sector as a whole over the past 20 years has been shedding labor. Because the high-end engineers that you're short of are hard to find. But the people who did the welding in the Volkswagen factory have all been replaced by robots. There's an inevitability to this. Anybody ever seen The Matrix? Favorite line from The Matrix? That, Mr. Anderson, is the sound of inevitability. <laughs> That's what happens. Now, as also, as, as, as countries get richer, what happens? You get more services because people demand more services. 
So even if your wages are low on average, the country's getting richer, which is very much a story about experience, right? So yes, Providence has lots of like massage parlors where you can spend, I don't mean those ones, I mean <laughs> the respectable ones, not the one that's just on the Pawtucket border that gets raided about every week. <laughs> yes, it's in the paper every week, it's got like smile or spa or something, it's like really? Could you call it something less obvious? But you can get a massage that'll cost you a hundred bucks if you've got that money to spend. Now here's the thing about services. So it's very hard to add robots to services. So that aging population, fastest growing job in the United States, elder care nurse. Second one is home health. Third one is short order cook. Short order cook, you can, you can robotize that. How many of you want or even contemplate your parents being taken in and out of bed and looked after by a machine? Never gonna happen. So it's hard for real cultural and other reasons to basically do this. So you're not bringing back manufacturing, your solutions is to close off the economy and basically produce shit that nobody wants, right? And you're also gonna blow up all the good bits of globalization, which are everything from the fact that we all carry iPhones to the fact that 1.2 billion people globally are no longer dirt poor. It's a bit of a mixed bag. That complex stuff kind of sucks. So how does that play out with uh Trump promising economic populism and packing his administration with... Your three minutes are up. <laughs> Did I answer my question? But that's right. <laughs> but you wanted other people to answer questions. Okay, um, well thanks very much, Mark. You're welcome. The next part is the question and answer section. The questions are pretty hard to hear, so I'm going to summarize them. Blythe on Bannon, global warming, and other questions. Bannon is Rasputin. <laughs> He's running the country, folks. Don't, don't kid yourself on. Right? He is, forget Trump. Trump's, Trump's a sideshow. Right? This agenda has been 15 years in the making. And that agenda, in its benign form, is a kind of one-nation conservative nationalism that actually does have a genuine concern for maintaining a capitalism that in the aggregate benefits everyone much more than the one that we've got. And that people shouldn't be turned into commodities for balance sheets, for extraction, for multinational banks. I think he really believes that. But another part of it is based upon a notion of whiteness. Another part of it is based upon the downside of nation, on exclusion and everything that basically as a man of the left I can't tolerate. So I find him fascinating. I find him, I find him incredibly challenging. I'd actually love to have a drink with him and really sit down and like poke into his brain. He doesn't drink either? Oh, jeez. Oh, I bet he hates cats as well. <laughs> probably. probably. <laughs> <laughs> he probably eats them. <laughs> love it. So, like, that's, that's why he's got that kind of like self satisfied look on his hands. Like, I just had another big toasted kitty tonight. <laughs> That, that big ginger cat's waiting for me. And, and how the, it plays out. And how it plays out. Well, that's a $64,000 question. I mean, I think there are hopeful signs in the sense that... All right, so, so here's my sort of... The one thing that we never talk about, even though we all know it's the big problem, is global warming. Now, I'm actually a little bit of a techno-optimist on this for reasons on another podcast I'd be happy to tell you about. But I think if there's any solution, it's not going to be 200 governments getting together in Copenhagen and giving each other a group hug. That's just not going to do it, right? What really matters is do you have sort of the wherewithal in terms of public finance and investment to basically do what you need to do to cope with it and have technologies that can help you adapt to it. 
And the Germans are already halfway there, and so are the Danes. And the Germans have a project underway called the Energiewende, the sort of the change in energy. And they're perfectly serious about this. And I think it was three years ago they actually got to a target of 30% on renewables already, or some order of magnitude like this. And there are some breakthrough technologies. The cost of solar has completely dropped down. Battery technology is getting much, much better and can be scaled up in a way it wasn't before. So there's some really hopeful stuff there. So what happens is, because we've been idiots about it, we're like, no, no, we don't do that, no, no global warming. So basically the Germans are going to invent it and the, the, the Chinese are going to take it to scale. Because they have to, because you can't live in Beijing without dying of cancer. So they're going to invent it, they're going to take it to scale, and the rest of the world economy is going to basically run from Spain to Japan. And we're going to be the shit show on the side because we don't want to invest. All we care about is immediate consumption. All we care about is cut my taxes. All we care about is keep brown people out and down. Right? That's a bad place to be. Blythe on automation and universal basic income. See, here's what I think of UBI. I'm, so, okay, in order for the UBI story to be the plausible story, you have to be a techno-optimist in the sense that I'm not. And the techno-optimist is the other side of the chessboard, Moore's Law, robots taking over everything. I, I'm intensely skeptical of this. Right? I just don't think it's possible. There are a huge amount of work that needs to be done that isn't even recognized as work. It's called the lump of labor fallacy. There's only a certain amount of work to be done. The robots take it, there's less work to be done. And every time that we have automated society, which we have done increasingly over the past 200 years, if you think about it, there's a bigger labor market rather than a smaller one. So I really need to be convinced that like, it's the end of things when you do this. The second one is, uh, so as well as being raised by Lucrecia Borgia, um, I, was, I was brought up by Benedictines. So, so I was a little child who was taught to love the world and its wonders. And then I was handed over to Jesuits. So I was taught to doubt its very existence and everyone's a liar, right? So part of me basically sort of you know, embraces the optimism of a UBI and thinks, and I can tell you this story that basically would be fantastic because what you would do is you would spread risk across the population in a positive way. So that rather than just like a benighted 10% who have got all the money and all the advantages and go to the best schools, being the people who do stuff and everybody else is fucked because they've got no resources, spread that much more evenly, you have much more entrepreneurship across the entirety of society. No downside to that. That's fantastic, right? Here's the other one. <laughs> Idle work, the devil's hands, bad in move. How many of you are guitar players? How many of you are shit guitar players? <laughs> So let's say we have a society in which basically it's like, hey, you can do anything. You can be a guitar player. Trust me, 12 years from now, I'll still be a shit guitar player. Right? If that's it, what's the meaning in my life? Because we get so much of our stuff from our contacts at work, the routine, going to work, the people we meet, our friends, etc. Once you start to take all that away on a kind of a whim that simply replacing meaning with cash is a meaningful thing, that could be very dangerous. So I don't know what to think about UBI, and that's my honest answer. Life on DSA, Bernie, and young people liking socialism a lot. So, um, yeah, yeah, DSA. Um, well, you know, there's a, there's a labeling there's a labeling problem with that one. It's got the word socialist in it, but Bernie managed to go over that. Um, no, I, I, again, this is what I think is a generational story in this. I think we need to stop thinking in terms of institutions and Congress and power and districts and all of the apparatus which has failed. Right, we need to actually think about the fact that, like, I'm looking at this side of the room, and the average age has got to be 30, right? I mean, like, over here, I think it's 12, right? <laughs> and, 
and, and, that, and that's brilliant, right? Because at the end of the day, it's your world, right? Now, your grandparents are horrible. They're global warming deniers. They've got all the money. They use it to control everyone. They're, like, they're shit, right? But they'll die. Now, then there's like the people who come after this, right? Which are kind of my generation who are like, look, I really know global warming's real, but I can't do anything about it because the fucking idiots running the country deny it, right? You're going to be landed though. At the end of the day, this is our mess, but it's going to be your problem to clean up. So that mobilization is going to happen whether we like it or not, because you're going to increase in number because everyone else is decreasing in number. And the bigger mess that we make more now, the more incentive that you have as a generation to get together. And it's not a question of left versus right on this one. We're actually talking basic issues of survival of industrial society going forward. And that's a hell of an agenda to dump on someone. So I don't think it's about, you know, should we have this party form, third party form or whatever. I think it's already driving it. And Bernie's campaign to me was truly the eye-opener on this. First of all, there are two people in Congress, this is actually true, right? I'm not making this show up. There are two people in Congress that no other people in Congress will have lunch with. One of them's Ted Cruz, that's not a shock. The other one's Bernie. He's not a likeable guy. He's not attractive. He's not charismatic. He just told the truth. And that was an astonishing, 12 million people got behind that. Now imagine if you had somebody who was all of those things that he wasn't, who could tell the truth. I think it would blow politics apart. But it's gonna happen with your generation and with my generation, not the people who unfortunately own everything at the current moment in time. Who happened to be, guess what, the majority of Trump voters? Funny that, isn't it? <laughs> Blythe on the role of racism in getting Trump elected. He lost the popular was absolutely true because basically LA, New York, and a bit of Miami and a bit of Houston vote massively Democrat and actually show up. The rest of the country, there's not. You can walk from Miami to basically, I think it is Ohio without ever touching a blue state. Right, so the popular vote, meaningless as far as I'm concerned. So you gotta win, that's the most important thing. And when your heartland falls down, and half of those counties voted for Obama, not once, but twice, and turned to this guy. You got a problem, because they didn't all suddenly wake up and go, fuck me, I hate black people. Because they voted for one twice, right? So it's so easy for the, the center left to turn around and say, oh, it's all racism. So, yes, of course that rhetoric was used. Um, the Republicans have a thing called the Southern Strategy. They've been doing this since 1970. It's nothing new. My friend Jonathan Kirshner did a piece in the Boston, and the LA Review uh, of books, which I think did it beautifully. It is absolutely true, in fact it's important to recognize, that not everyone who voted for Trump was a racist. It is absolutely true that every racist who bothered to vote, voted for Trump. <laughs> so the only question was, was there suddenly a couple of million extra violent racists? Or was it the fact that you had 8chan, 4chan, Breitbart, and a whole bunch of technological infrastructures amplifying something that had already been there to a new level, capitalizing upon that, channeling that as yet another feed into this incipient coalition and movement, which was just there for the picking, and that we couldn't see, we couldn't find, we couldn't trip over it if it was right in front of us. Finally, let's assume everybody's just a racist all of a sudden. What's your public policy solution? We're going to put them in a naughty step. 
-hmm. Are we going to shame them? Are we going to say, you're a bad person? Because I don't think they give a shit. So if it's not economic, we really have a problem. Because we can do something about that. And I don't actually think that this country that I joined 26 years ago, that I've like spent my life in, and hopefully will spend the rest of my life in, actually suddenly became violently racist, and that explains everything. For one simple reason, it provides an exculpatory narrative to the Democrats that everything that they've done has been fine. Banking deregulation, all of it, all the bullshit that they've done and trade, all that stuff. We don't have to examine that because all that happened was we won the popular vote, we didn't do well in turnout, and they're a bunch of racists. If that's your diagnosis, short the Democrats, they're going nowhere. So there are people all over the country who are racist. There's loads of French people who are racist, right? There's loads of Brits who are racist. The question is, does that actually tip elections? And does that really drive the things that we're thinking about? And to me, it just makes much more sense that if I'm looking at stagnant wages for 25 years, meanwhile I see through social media, meanwhile I see through my television, through my experience, through the mediaized culture, through the celebrity bullshit culture that we live in, that there's a tiny number of people not just ripping everything off. When they do it, they get bailed out by the government that I'm voting for, that's going to cause a problem more than the fact that Billy Bob or whoever it is, is a bit of a racist. The racism is a continuous variable. It's not a discrete variable. It's not on or off and suddenly you have more. Racism comes up in lots of different ways. And essentially, when it comes down to it, everybody is a little bit racist. In the following sense, everybody likes difference until it threats you. So here's my example of this. You live in Lewisham in London and you go to the local public schools, as you call them here, there's a very strong possibility that English is not the first language in your class. So you take your kid to school, and it's in a multilingual background. Now, me, as a bourgeois two-percenter who sends a kid to the French school, oh, I'm, I'm totally down with that. But it's not French, it's Urdu. So you're not comfortable with that. And you have no private sector alternative. And the only people who say that that's a problem are the National Front. Does that make you a racist? Blythe on China. I will tell you my best story about this, right? So there's a guy I know, truly, I know this guy, I'm not making a show up, right? And uh, when Trump was getting elected, he was in Taiwan, in the stock exchange in Taiwan, 12 hours difference. So there's a, th a thing in finance called the implied futures volatility, which basically means how much people are shitting themselves about the markets tomorrow. So you start to see this at the same time, Nate Silver's projecting 85%. Yeah, good one, Nate, right? So it starts to go down like this. And the Chinese are like, holy shit, Trump's getting elected. Now the Taiwan stock exchange, even though they're separate countries and all this sort of nonsense, is completely linked into the one in Hong Kong and completely linked into the one in uh, Shanghai. So they're all doing their trading at the same time. And it comes through and basically it starts, the, the place is buzzing. And my friend who's there is like, yeah, I mean, it's terrible. It's not a shit show he's going to win. So it's awful, whatever, right? And then the news comes through, Trump is definitely going to win. All three places, the Chinese go nuts. They're, they're throwing paper on the air. They're celebrating. They think it's absolutely fantastic, right? And my friend who's American is sitting there going, I'm sorry, what am I missing here? And then he hears the chant go up in Shanghai. No TTP. No TTP. No TTP. Now, to us as good lefties, investor protection clauses, all the bad shit that's in there, we don't like that, right? It was a strategic plan to keep China off the Pacific sort of like hegemony. That's what it was all about. And we just shorted that. So they're delighted. They're absolutely delighted. Because what it means is you can stick your pivot, you can stick your TTP. We're going to run this whole thing. 
Last week, the first cut a train of, or last month, the first train of containers went all the way from Beijing to London. Knock yourself out. That's what we're giving up. So yeah, big time. And guess what? They don't look crazy in comparison to us. So when you're the Australian Prime Minister and you got on a call to the US President, you usually sort of like, G'day mate, how's it going? Rather than like, you're a bad person, they're illegal immigrants. And you're like, what are you talking about? You're insane. And then you put the phone down and go, get me China. Mark, thanks so much. Thank you all for coming out. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once sort of said, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world, in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, engineered by Liza Yeager, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us on iTunes or wherever it is that you get your podcasts, and subscribe. And also, please leave us a glowing review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. So does spreading the word to your friends. The more propaganda on our behalf, the better. And please find us on Patreon and support us with a monthly payment. Even $5 a month is very, very helpful. In the coming weeks, we'll be talking about the movement for black lives, the carceral state, and the right-wing assault on the courts including the peculiar jurisprudential fraud known as originalism. Thank you.